man. Ooh, 45 minutes on a Wednesday night. That's pretty good. Pastor Ken. I got 45 minutes tonight, Pastor Ken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's that, Jim? <laughs> so being the fact that I had a short amount of time to really determine, okay, what are we, what are we going to look at this evening? I felt good and confident in that Lord was like, do what you want to do tonight. You know, normally, those of you know, it's sort of a struggle trying to figure this out and a lot of time in prayer and writing a message and then getting rid of it and writing another one and getting rid of it and then just coming up here and see what happens, you know. But tonight, I really felt like God was like, just do what you want to do. And so I was like, oh, great. And so tonight, I want to do just that. I want to uproot Tulip. How many people know what I'm talking about already right here? Okay. How many people think I talk about sort of this topic a lot? Oh, wow. Okay. I saw a couple of hands over there. I just want to preface it by saying this. You know, if the Lord definitely leads me to do something else, I will always do something else. But this is a topic that God has burdened me over the past two years, going on two years now, in the fact that if out of all the doctrines in the entirety of Scripture, out of all those doctrines we looked at probably a month or two back, soteriology has got to be the most important doctrine. Because we can get Christology right, we talked about it, you can get theology proper and God the Father right, we can know all there is to know about the Holy Spirit. But if we don't know what the Gospel is, if we don't know how somebody can get saved, if we don't know how somebody can know they're on the way to heaven, then what point is it to know all that information? if we're not leading people to Christ into a personal saving relationship. And so I do apologize in advance if people are like, oh, this is a one-man band, this is a one-horse you know, guy. It's just, it's a very deep burden. And so what I want to do this evening is I want to go ahead and just give you something to think about. I don't even want to talk about the entirety of the Calvinistic system of TULIP. But what I want to do is I want to show you that if you can... If you can grasp the tea and tulip, everything else goes away. Everything. Unconditional election goes away. Limited atonement goes away. Irresistible grace goes away. Perseverance of the saints goes away. All we really truly have to do to rightfully discredit and refute tulip is to discredit and refute total depravity. That's it. You don't believe me? Let's look at a couple Calvinists. Thomas Boer says that each doctrine in TULIP relates to the others in such a way that if you change or redefine any one of them, you violate their logical coherency and they no longer fit together. R.C. Sproul goes on to say, one cannot embrace the T and reject any other four letters without any degree of consistency. So anybody that holds to the TULIP system of theology, whether they admit it or not, the entire bedrock of TULIP falls on the T. If you can uproot total depravity, there is no necessity 
for their understanding of election, for their understanding of limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance as saints. It all stems on total depravity. And again, this is not against Calvinists. This is just against theology. Why? Because somebody like myself, if you love the Word of God, and you passionately really want to go ahead and study it to be able to exegete it and teach it as biblically as best as you believe Scripture says, any illogical incoherencies have to be discarded and you have to continue to stand up against certain systems, whether it's Arminianism, Calvinism, or any of the other isms. And so this is of importance. Like I said, total depravity is the bedrock of the entire system. If you can refute total depravity, you can refute TULIP. What does total depravity mean? Arthur Pink says that total depravity means that the sinner of himself cannot repent and believe. In other words, Pink argues that the natural man in his unregenerate natural state, meaning the unsaved person, cannot even want to believe in the gospel. Westminster Confession says, Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will or desire to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So even the Westminster Confession over there in London had put together this creed that says total depravity because of the depravity of mankind, mankind can't even want to believe. They can't even get themselves ready to accept the gospel that it all has to be a work of God. In my words, Mankind can neither do good nor choose good unless regenerated by God through what's known as the monergistic work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, where Titus 3.5 says that by the washing of regeneration, which we would argue happens simultaneously to conversion, some people will say it happens prior to belief that you have to be regenerated by God. Through that regeneration, you will then want to believe the gospel. It is also argued that the unsaved person can respond to the gospel, but they can only respond negatively. That according to the theology, the unsaved man cannot respond positively to the gospel unless God makes him. And we'll look at some other quotes. So what I want to look at this evening is if total depravity is the bedrock, if this is the bottom card that's holding the whole house of cards up, there are four ways just concisely, and there's a lot more than this, that we can pull that card and have the entire house of cards fall down. And again, you don't need to know anything about election, atonement, any of the other stuff. All you need to know about is total depravity. First, total depravity, in my view, is tyrannical. Total depravity, in other words, mischaracterizes God. It places a character of God that is foreign to the Bible. Matter of fact, as it says here, this theology teaches a deterministic worldview, which is actually no different from an atheist. 
Now, I'm not saying people that believe this theology are atheists. I do believe that people that believe this theology love Jesus Christ. They love to serve the Lord. I believe they are saved and they will be in heaven, and I'm sure they're getting rewards too, all that. So I do believe those things. But the worldview that this theology holds to is no different from atheistic naturalism. Richard Dawkins says that pretty much our, our beings, we, our brains, just dance to our DNA. I'm sure you've heard that saying before, that we are just products of our experiences and our environment and our chemical makeup and the fact that we just do what our brain tells us to do. There's really no free will in it. We're just programmed. Lawrence Krauss, another atheist, goes on to say, I agree with everything I know about the world, tells me that there is no such thing as free will. This is very common with a lot of atheists. You know, there's no free will, there's a lot of determinism. Joel Beek, who is an ardent hyper-Calvinist, says that the wicked only carry out what God decrees. And so, in other words, what Hamas is doing right now, according to Joel Beek, is what God has sovereignly decreed. So according to Joel Beek, that Hamas is murdering people, babies, torturing and raping, because the wicked only carry out what God decrees. This is why it bothers me. This is in his book, uh, Calvin on Sovereignty and Providence. He goes on to say, Calvin contends that God has sovereignly decreed sin, providentially directs sin, and justly allows sin. God so directs sin that it glorifies himself and works for the welfare of his people. Thus, our wrong choices do not override God's sovereignty, but our wrong choices are included in God's sovereignty. Odo depravity is tyrannical. John Calvin, in his Institutes, in chapter 14, says there is no random power, there is no agency or motion in creatures who are so governed by the secret counsel of God that nothing happens but what he has knowingly and willingly decreed. To include what Hamas is doing right now. To include what is happening to our brothers and sisters in churches that we just prayed about. The theology teaches that God is making these things happen. Like I said, total depravity leads to an unholy character of God that is completely foreign to Scripture. And again, this is just a very brief overview. So if we, if we want to dismantle total depravity, we have to figure out, okay, what is God's character like? Is God a character of love? God a character of mercy? Grace? We would say so. Is he a character, does he have a characteristic of righteousness? He does. Does he have a characteristic of holiness and being set apart? He does. And so, sovereignty has to be rightfully understood and properly defined, but what's happening here is too many people mis misunderstand the concept of sovereignty and says that God does every single action in the world because if he allows you and I free will, then by essence he is not sovereign and we are overriding his power. And that's sort of the philosophy they, they get through. And so the first thing is total depravity is uh, tyrannical, but also total depravity is quite illogical. All right? So we know that uh, three laws of logic, 
three main laws of logic, principle of identity, the law of excluded middle, and then the one we're all familiar with is the law of non-contradiction. The lights can't be on and not on at the same time. They're either on or they're not on, you know? Law of non-contradiction is one that makes logical sense of our words. You see, within total depravity, Arthur Pink says this, as creature, the natural man is responsible to love, obey, and serve God. But at the outset, we are confronted with the fact that the natural man is unable to love and serve God. So I, I, a lot of the philosophy is totally contradictory. It's even self-defeating, self-refuting, illogical. Because on one side, it said that man, natural man, unsaved, is responsible. But then on the other end, it says the natural man cannot unless God tells him to, makes him. So if man is responsible, but man is unable, how is it logical that man is responsible if man cannot? If I tell you right now, you need to go out there and take my car, go to the gas station, fill it, give me a full tank of gas, and bring it back. But I never give, me a car, give you car keys. Could you be responsible for not doing it? No, because I never gave you the ability, right? But certain philosophies argue that you are still responsible even though God doesn't give you the ability. You see how illogical that is. Not only that, well, this is uh, that last statement in a syllogism as far as a logical argument. Premise one, the natural man's responsible. Premise two, the natural man cannot. Conclusion, the natural man is responsible for his rejection. This is an illogical argument. It's an invalid premise or an invalid conclusion. Thomas Boer goes on and he says this in the Doctrines of Grace. He says, the sinner does indeed, out of his own free will, savingly believe. But he cannot do that unless he is first made willing to believe. So on one hand, man has his free will to believe. But on the other hand, man is made willing to believe. There's just a contradiction there. It's an illogical argument. You either free willingly choose to, or you are made to. It's not both. It's not a both and. It's an either or. Not only is total depravity tyrannical, total depravity is illogical, total depravity is what I call paradoxical, or it provides conundrums, paradoxes, Things that are unreasonable. If man does not believe the gospel, because man is unable to believe the gospel unless God makes him willing, is man at fault for not believing? I ask you that question. If man is responsible, but man cannot unless God makes him, is man ultimately responsible? Logic would indicate no, right? But that's not what they argue. But they'll go on and say, if man, man is at fault for not believing, because God does not give man the ability to believe, does this not reveal an injustice with God? Again, this attacks the character of God. Because what's being said is the fact that man in the natural state, an unregenerate man, an unsaved person, cannot believe unless God makes him believe. But those that do not believe are condemned because they don't believe the gospel. And it's on them. 
Well, how is man at fault for not believing the gospel if, according to the theology, the prerogative is on God to make them believe? Again, it's the illustration, the analogy. If I tell you to go take my car and fill it up with gas, but I never give you the keys to do it, but yet I yell at you because you've never done it, does that make any sense? Like, give me the keys and I'll do it. No, you're not going to have the keys. You can't have a hot wire the car because it's locked. But you're still at fault because you're not filling up my gas. But you've never given me the ability to drive your car. It is no different than what this theology is teaching. Saying, if you want to believe, you can't want to believe. You have to wait for God to make you want to believe. And only then will you truly believe. The fourth thing, I didn't think I'd have this much time. The fourth thing is total depravity is unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical. Depravity is misdefined, improperly defined as, like we already looked, man in his natural unsafe state does not even want to believe in the gospel. But from what we see in Scripture, the depravity of mankind reveals the fact that you and I are so depraved in the fact that there is nothing you and I can do to merit our own righteousness. There is nothing you and I can do to allow God to look at us and say, I'm going to save you. Other than believing in the gospel. That's it. There is no work. There is no amount of money. There is no sacrifice that you, I, or anybody in the world can do to merit our own righteousness. It only comes through faith in the gospel message. Total depravity is improperly defined as the earlier that I explained, but it's unbiblical. And we're going to look at just a couple verses. I'm not going to go into great in depth, uh, depth with them. I'm going to use a couple uh, people who are a lot smarter than me. I'll allow them to explain it. And I'll give you a, uh, a location where you can get more information in the coming months. But how many people have heard of proof texting? Okay, so basically a proof text is basically a text to prove your point. That's all it is. You know, people are graduating in May. Like Jeremiah 20, 29, 11. Oh, you're graduating, you're going to college. God's got big plans for you. A great future and a great expected end hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. We're just going to take that verse and apply it to the situation. Even though it has nothing to do with graduation. Or Philippians 4, 13. I just got done watching a hockey game. I wish I could skate and play hockey, but if I was going to play a game of hockey, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which gives me strength. So I'm going to find the biggest guy, like Mike Horn, and I'm going to try to check him into the boards and try to start a fight and beat him up. Right? Because, hey, in hockey you fight. Why? Because it's a momentum swing. It's part of the game. So Philippians 4.13, I can beat up Mike. I, if you're watching this, I, I, I have no, no. I'm just using you as an illustration, Mike. But uh, no, that's using the text to prove what I'm trying to say. And this is exactly what proof texting is. It's very easy to commit. All of us commit it. Bokeem Ministry says one lifts a piece of scripture out of the context and presents the proof text as evidence to support or refute a uh, doctrinal position. 
Like I said, Philippians 4.13 has nothing to do with playing hockey. It has everything to be content in Christ no matter what situation you find yourself in. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're struggling, whether you're living in abundance. You can do all those things by your faith and your relationship and your clinging on to Christ. Because he gives you strength. Whether your bills are paid or whether you're struggling to pay your bills. You can get through that day because Christ is all you need. And he'll give you the strength to make it one more moment. Or Jeremiah 29, 11. When Jeremiah is writing that passage, he's actually writing to the Jewish people in Babylonian captivity. People don't want to continue reading those letters that Jeremiah had written and delivered because he's telling the Israelite people, he's going to be there for 70 years. So you guys might want to just plant gardens, get married, have families, seek peace of the city, and then after 70 years, I'm going to deliver you. But no, it's all about graduation, right? We want to divorce it out of its context to prove our point, regardless of if there's 50 other verses that speak different to what you're trying to argue. Opposition. Like I said, you and I, everybody does it. It's very easy to do it. This is what is so dangerous about topical preaching. So if we were to come up here and be like, I want to preach on, you know, grace or holiness or church pews or whatever the case is. Topical preaching, then you go find verses that seem to fit what your topic is. The danger is, is you don't study out the context of those verses and so you're using them outside of what the intended meaning is. But you're just using that one sentence to prove your point. And it's very dangerous. And Paul told Timothy that we need to rightly divide the word of truth. So these are just some proof texts that I would argue that are used to support or argue total depravity. In Psalm 14, Psalm 53, I believe, Romans chapter 3. I'm only going to talk about two of those tonight very briefly. But out of these three passages, what is argued is the fact that no one seeks after God. So the reason why they hold to depravity, meaning that you can't even believe unless God makes you believe, is because these verses say no one seeks after God. So unless God makes you seek after him, you won't seek after God. This is a term called monergism, and you could study that and look into that as well. But they get this idea from a few of these passages. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So in this verse, it's argued... Now see, nobody is seeking God. God's looking down from heaven, looking at the entire world, and no one seeks after him. Boom. Unless God makes you seek, you're not seeking. One of the verses. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. And Paul writes, as it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So here is another text that is used to argue 
There is nothing good in you. And if there is nothing good in you, there is nothing good you can desire to do unless God makes you to desire it through the work of monergistic regeneration. These are two verses that they use. So I just want to go ahead and look at this for a couple moments. So out of those two passages, there's none that seeks God, right? There's none that seeks God. But yeah, you can pull up numerous other passages that speak of people actually seeking God. You can find this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those that seek me early will find me. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. The Bible does speak of people that seek God. So the question is, okay, Romans and Psalm 14 says no one seeks God. Yeah, these verses say there are people that do seek God. So the coward is like, ha ha, those are the ones that God makes seek them. Those are the elected that God is regenerating before so that they would believe. But we'll get to that. Not only that, but Scripture tells people to seek after God. Think about this. If God tells you to do something, but he doesn't give you the ability to do it, and he blames you for not doing it, how unjust is that? Isaiah, seek the Lord while you may be found. Amos, seek me, ye shall live. There is cause from God, from prophets of God, to seek God. But wait, no one can seek God, right? Not only that, people are commanded to seek God. John the Baptist, Jesus early in his ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, seek me. Acts 17, that God commandeth everywhere, men everywhere to repent. The Bible speaks of countless times where people are commanded to believe, commanded to turn to Him, commanded to seek Him. Why would God command people to do something He doesn't give them the ability to do? See, the logic train just derails when we really start looking at these things. But what about Psalm 14 and, and Romans 3? What about these passages? It does say that God did look down from heaven to see if there's anyone on earth and that no one seeks Him. What about it? Romans 3, there's none that understand. There's none that do good. What do we do with that? Well, when we go back to Psalm 14, you can really parallel Psalm 14 with Psalm 53 because they are almost identical with the exception of a couple phrases. Psalm 14, Psalm 53 are pretty much identical. And so when we're coming to this, we realize that if you were to turn to Psalm 14, verse number 1, the psalmist writes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay? And so the... The discussion and the debate is, who is the fool? Is the fool an atheist that just rejects God outright? Is the fool somebody that knows God but just rejects God outright? Regardless of the debate, the entirety of the psalm focuses on the fool. And so in verses 2 and 3, 
when there's this reference that God looks down to see if any do good, he's using it in reference to the fool. That is the total theme of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And if you were to look in verse number 5, and I can turn there and read it real quick, but if you were to look at Psalm 14, verse number 5, you will look at the fact that the fool is contrasted with there were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come back out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. The first half of the psalm is completely in reference to the fool, the person that rejects God, rejects the ways of God, rejects the wills of God. And these are the ones in the first half of the verse that in verse 4 he calls workers of iniquity. Also in verse 4 he says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread? So the fool, the workers of iniquity, are contrasted with the Lord's people and the generation of righteous. So we cannot take Psalm 14 and just say blanket statement, no one in the entire universe ever does good or seeks God or does anything righteous. Wasn't Abraham called a friend of God? Wasn't Paul pretty commendable in his service and ministry to the Lord as well? Are there not plenty of people in the, in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11? And so, Dr. Robert Dean says this, Psalm 14 is stating the qualifications to be a fool. A fool rejects God's revelation of himself and his creation and in the word. Psalm 14, 1 states they are corrupt. Who are they? Is that all mankind? No. It is the fool who has rejected God. He's talking about those who have exercised negative volition or free will toward God and have rejected him completely and don't want to know anything about him. Psalm 14 has nothing to do with depravity of mankind and the fact that you cannot seek after God. It has nothing to do with that. Psalm 14 is contrasting the people that reject God and the people of God. There's a contrast there. What about Romans chapter 3? And there is none that doeth good. None. No, not one. We've got to realize in Romans chapter 1 through 3, Paul just got done outline universal guilt. Universal guilt under the wrath of God because of our sin, our sinfulness. The Gentiles for certain reasons, the Jews for certain reasons, but the entire world is guilty, and we cannot merit our own righteousness. This is what Paul is talking about in the first few chapters of Romans. If you were to look at the quotations, he's quoting from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and some other passages as well. The key to really understanding the book of Romans is to dig in your Bible. Specifically in Romans 9-11. through Because Paul quotes the Old Testament a lot. I think in Romans 9-11, through he uses 36 verses that are nothing but Old Testament quotes. 36 verses in 3 chapters. So if we really want to understand what Romans is about, 
and specifically 9 through 11, we have got to try to understand those Old Testament quotes in its context and how is Paul applying it to his day. But all we really want to do is read what Paul is saying and slap it on our, our theology and not look at what Paul is using that quote from the Old Testament for what purpose. You see, I will completely agree that if God had not reached down to mankind first, if he has not given us general revelation, if he has not given us special revelation, if he hasn't given us creation and conscience, if he hasn't given us the intrinsic desire to worship, every single person in this world worships something. doesn't matter if you live here, you live in Myanmar, you live in some remote tribe in Africa. People have an intrinsic desire to worship. I would argue that's that metaphorical, figurative, God-shaped hole. That is that one objective truth every single person has. So yes, if, if God had not reached down, we would not reach up. But God did reach down, and in this day and age, he'd reach down through, well, not the evergreen, but the cross. The cross used to be up here, now it's back there because it's Christmas time. But uh, God has reached down, and right now he reached down through cross. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. And the fact that we are confronted at the cross. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I think it's in verse 16, for the cross is power of God unto salvation. And so we got to realize the fact that God has reached down to us. But Paul is simply using Romans 3 to declare universal guilt among mankind. Has nothing to do with mankind can seek God or not. It's just saying all people do no spiritual good in their unsaved state. We cannot save ourselves. We can do nothing to merit our own righteousness. Dr. Co uh, Thomas Constable says this, The statement that there is no one who seeks out God means that no one seeks God without God prompting him or her to do so. No one seeks after God for his own sake. It does not mean that people are constitutionally incapable of seeking God. People can and should seek God, and they're responsible for not doing so. Therefore, Romans 3 doesn't teach this idea that you and I, unless God forces us to seek him, that we can't. That is foreign to what Paul is saying. Like I said, concluding the entire world lies in guilt and condemnation due to sin and belief. Romans states man in his natural unsaved state cannot merit his own righteousness. We can do nothing pleasing to God. That's why Paul says in verse 12, there is none that doeth good. It's not about the inability of man to seek God, but rather the inability of man to be righteous before God. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 3. It has nothing to do on whether you and I actually choose to seek him. Going back. Total depravity. Remember, R.C. Sproul and Thomas Brewer said that pretty much the entirety of the tulip system stands on total depravity. It all stands on that. Like I said before, can you waste your time trying to understand how that theology teaches their view of election or limited atonement or any? You don't, if you want to, great. You don't have to. All you really have to understand is total depravity and how it is tyrannical, illogical, and how it's completely foreign to Scripture. You see, it makes God's character malevolent, 
when you recall some of the statements from the Westminster Confession, when you recall some statements from Calvin himself, and you can even go back to Augustine, who teaches determinism. Uh, when you go back to these things, not only do they teach that God is tyrannical, but also there are statements out there that he's a masochist, that he takes pleasure in condemning people to hell. And that there are very precise in their words and in, in teaching as far as elect infants go to heaven. So if you're qualifying some infants as elect, what about those infants that are not elect? He is, and so it teaches not only tyrannical, but this masochistic God. It's, it's illogical. We looked at the fact that they say that you have to seek and believe Seek God and believe in the gospel. And it's on you if you don't. But you can't do it unless God makes you. It's illogical. It's paradoxical because, again, if, we're, if we have the responsibility to believe, but God doesn't give the responsibility, then does that not make God unjust? And we looked at sort of that breakdown, that argument. It, it doesn't make sense. And then it's unbiblical. We've only looked at the two verses, and you could go into much greater depth, and there's a lot more verses on this. But when it comes down to all of it, total depravity is based on a bad definition of sovereignty and a bad definition of depravity. And when they mean when they say depravity, they mean inability. So you may see, you know, total depravity slash inability. They actually teach inability. Matter of fact, for that point, R.C. Sproul doesn't even like the term total depravity. He calls it radical corruption. Radical corruption because our corruption in our natural state is so bad that we can't even want to do good or want to believe the gospel. At least he's honest. I totally trust R.C. Sproul's in heaven right now. I totally trust that. I am not arguing against Calvinists. I love Calvinists. Just talking about Tulip. This is a book that I don't, some of you may already be aware of, but there will be a lot more of this information in this book that I am trying to finish up. I'm hoping it's going to be out in February. But basically what this is, is it's an acronym that was developed, me and a couple guys, called LOTUS. And whereas TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, to try to get people to understand there's other options out there for a soteriological system, a framework on how one can be saved, and we develop what's known as LOTUS. The five-letter flower stands for liable depravity, Mankind is liable for their own depravity, their own sin, and they are also liable for their own belief. But we are liable to believe as well. We have the ability to place faith in God for salvation. Liable depravity, occupational election. Election is a biblical term, but election is always to a position, a service, or a blessing. Jesus Christ said in John chapter 6, Have I not chosen you, one of you is the devil. John 6.70. So election is to a service, 
position or a blessing. And that's what occupational election talks about. It's bringing election back biblical. And you have total atonement. It's not a limited atonement that he only died for just the elect. Total atonement. That he died to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. But it doesn't teach universalism. It's not that everybody gets saved. It's that he made a ransom for all. And those that believe and put their faith in Christ will receive everlasting life. Total atonement. They have unlimited grace as opposed to what irresistible grace teaches and the fact that God only gives grace to the elect. You know, there's a general grace that goes out to everybody, that, but the effective grace is only for the elect that he sovereignly chose before the foundation of the world. And that cannot be resisted. So he gives this fake grace to the unbelievers, but the real grace, he makes the believers. Whereas unlimited grace teaches that, no, God's grace is unlimited in the fact that it's extended to whosoever. And that God loves the whole world that whosoever believes should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. And as opposed to perseverance of the saints where uh, Tulip teaches, he that endures to the end will be saved. And they take that tribulation passage out of context, saying, if you are my disciple, you will pick up your cross and carry, carry your cross and follow me daily. You have to persevere to the end to be saved. John Piper teaches and calls it final salvation. So you, if you ask a Calvinist on a scale of 1 to 100, how certain are you of your salvation? They will always say 99. Because they cannot have 100% certainty. Because they don't know if they're going to persevere to the end. He that endures to the end will be saved. It's a proof text pulled out of its context to teach the philosophy. Whereas... And Lotus, the S is security of the saints. That you and I are guaranteed everlasting life because of the faith we put in the shed blood of Christ for our sins. Because Jesus Christ said, if you look, you will live. He that believed in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John chapter 11, I believe verse number 25. Everlasting life is given in a present tense. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 30, that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our salvation. We are ready, waiting to be redeemed until the day of redemption. So he is our down payment until the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit is indwelling in us until we are united with the Lord. And so... If there's anything that we had to do to have, maintain, keep our salvation, it would be of works. And it's not of works. It's of grace that we are saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9. And so, this book is going to go ahead and take every point of tulip and take every point of lotus and look at them one by one, side by side. And sort of like we did tonight, we'll look at total depravity. What is really said? Look at libel depravity. What is, you know, what do we believe it says? What does Scripture say? Which one really paints the best view, character of God, and which one has most biblical support? All that to say is that that'll come out, hopefully, you know, Lord willing, in, in February time frame. But for tonight's lesson, all we really need to know is total depravity. Once we realize that total depravity is a philosophy, in that it is illogical, it's paradoxical, it is unbiblical, and it makes God character one that is foreign to Scripture, we have to reject the tulip version of total depravity. And if we reject that, there's no need for people to be elected unto salvation. 
There's no need for Jesus to die only for the elect. There's no need for God's grace to irresistibly draw the elect. And there's no need for only the elect to persevere until the end. Because if total depravity is true, then you have to be elect to have all those things. But total depravity is not true. And so I would give you those four areas of refutation for it. Just off of that, you can make the house of cards fall in Tula. That's all you really need to know. And again, this was very concise. There's a lot more that goes into it. My chapter on total depravity is like 19 pages. And uh, that's in eight, eight and a half by 11. So in book form, it's probably going to be like 30, 40 pages worth of just that one t- point. So uh, I hope this has been at least informative, maybe equipping, because part of this is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And, and if we're going to be discipling people, people are going to be coming across certain theologies. And certain theologies will make them question, am I really a Christian? Jesus really died for me? Am I really one of the elect? Or can we know that all these things are written that you may believe? In 1 John 5.13, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do we believe that? And I would argue, yes, we do. Yes, we can. So, all that said, like I said, I hope this will bless you. I'll close a word of prayer. And if anybody has any questions, I'll be glad to answer some questions. But otherwise, like I said, uh, we will be here Sunday morning. And just be in prayer for Pastor Ken and Jen. And be in prayer for the service Saturday as well from 1, uh, one to 3 o'clock also. So let us pray. God, I thank you just for this evening. And Lord, is, you've given me the burden for this. And so I thank you for me having peace of just being able to speak on what you know, I wanted to tonight. So I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you know, this is an equipping lesson for this evening that we can go ahead and, and just think about it. And go ahead and help people get out of the unsurety of their salvation and to be able to trust in your word and the security that you promise to those that place faith in you. Lord, we thank you for the preservation of Scripture and pray that the Spirit would just do the work throughout the week. We ask you in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.